going to read this passage for us. I'm going to pray for us, and then let's go ahead and get into it. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Oh, by the way, we're in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. Let's pick it up in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, would you please allow us to understand what Jesus is preaching here? Allow this to penetrate our hearts. Allow the light to burst in all areas of the darkness and transform us. Cause us this morning to look at Jesus, to look at you and say, wow, God, you are more amazing today than I thought yesterday. Please help us. If there are those who need encouragement, would you encourage them? If there are those who are backsliding and need the spirit of conviction, would you conviction, convict them? And if there are those who are here this morning whose hearts are hard and eyes are blind, would you show them your mercy and grace? Father, let your Spirit be active this morning. 
We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 2015, Sharice and I's school closed, and I had one more year of my undergrad before I was finally a college graduated man. But what we had to do is we had to pack up and move out of state. It was the first time I think that either of us lived out of state. So we were going to a foreign land. We didn't know what to expect, so we moved down to the south to Louisville, Kentucky, or as they would pronounce it, Louisville. Depending on where you went, some consider them not the south, but when you come all the way from up north where it's just a stone's throw away from Canada, everything is north from that or south from that. When we got there, I actually had to leave Sharice right away because I had commitments to go to the Czech Republic with a team, a basketball team, and put on a a basketball camp. It was a, a, a missionary jaunt. So we went to a foreign land, and then I left my wife in the foreign land to go to another foreign land. And while I was gone, Sharice was checking out a few churches. And there was one church in particular that when I got back, she said, there's a couple of our friends from our previous school who go to this church, and the preaching is great. And so we went and checked out. We went to this church that was a church plant. It was meeting in a Marriott hotel conference room. And the first Sunday that I went, that, that we went together, we were hooked. It's the best preaching I've ever sat under. And while we were there, a few months later, there was a guest preacher. And although I was a little bit bummed that this guest preacher was here because the, the pastor who was the preacher was so incredible, incredibly gifted, I thought, okay, let's go ahead and give him a try. And as this man started to preach, H.P. Charles Jr., the H.B. was literally just H.B. That was his opening thing. That's his name, H.B. His name is Letters. H.B. Charles Jr. I remember thinking to myself halfway through the sermon, I want to do what this guy does. He's lifted people up into heaven and allowed them to taste the glory of God. This is incredible. I don't think he looked down at his notes once. He was preaching from Jude now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless and holy. I remember his introduction as he said, it's like a, a father who is holding his son's hand. It was a beautiful message that encouraged the believers that God will keep you. He preached on the doctrine of the perseverance of saints and left people wanting more. It was incredible. It was the best sermon by far that I have listened to. That is, until I came to Matthew 5 through 7 and then read that out loud and said, this is the best sermon I've ever listened to. 
The Sermon on the Mount, which we're about to enter into, is by far, no matter who you've heard preach, the best sermon that has ever been preached to mankind. And it starts out in the most wonderful way. It starts out in the most counter-cultural, unbelievable way. As Jesus' fame is growing and spreading, He is gaining popularity. He sits down, His disciples come to Him, and He preaches a sermon on happiness of all things. This is how Jesus starts out His sermon. And then He exhorts His disciples to live salty, and to shine brightly. To be a city on a hill. So if you want to narrow these 16 verses down, we could say it like this. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to shine brightly. We're going to see this in two ways this morning. We're going to see how he teaches them to shine brightly. And we're going to see first what the kingdom norms are. Or what it looks like to be a normal kingdom citizen. A citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And then what we will do is we will look at what the kingdom witness is to look like. So two points. What the kingdom norms are. What it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What the normal life of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is. And what their kingdom witness looks like. So we start in verse 1 this morning. And Jesus, seeing the crowds, He went up onto a mountain. And when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. It's a very common thing that a teacher, when he was speaking with authority, would sit instead of stand. So this isn't an informal teaching. Actually, this is a very formal teaching that Jesus is giving. During the first century, it would have been informal to pace back and forth and to walk around while teaching. The one who would sit in the chair was seen with authority. The end of the sermon, we see that people marveled at Jesus because He spoke as if He had authority. When His disciples came to Him, He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One way that we could understand what Jesus is saying here is that we could translate blessing also into happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But that seems a bit off, doesn't it? How are those who are poor happy? 
I live in America. I have a 501c3. Well, I don't have that, but I have a 401k, 501c3, whatever. I have a retirement plan. I want to be as successful as possible. I want to get a a good paying job so I could retire early. And yet, what Jesus is saying is that those who are happy aren't the rich, but the poor. But he's not merely talking about monetary things. He's talking about being poor in spirit. What does being poor in spirit look like? Why is the person happy if they're poor in spirit? Well, what Jesus is unfolding for his disciples here is that those who who know that they are spiritually bankrupt, those that know that they are sinful, that that they are bankrupt when it comes to, to spiritualness, that they have a certain poverty about them that they can't shake, that they can't get over, that no matter how much they work, they won't be able to lay up enough treasures in heaven to gain the pleasure of the Father, to let them in. And so Jesus starts out his message with saying, happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice how Jesus right here says theirs is. Those who are poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. But far too often, as sinful creatures as we are, we love to medicate this poor in spirit. We have this idea in us, for some reason, things aren't as the way they should be. We see evil things happen throughout the world. We, we know our hearts better than anyone. We, we know the sins that we commit. We feel the guilt that we have when we wrong somebody else. But what we tend to do to cover up the poor in spirit is we self-medicate it. We look for different medications. Some turn to hard drugs. Some turn to alcohol. Some love to turn on the TV and watch hours upon hours and binge. Some love to go on Facebook so that way they can satisfy this drug of anger, of malice. Some satisfy this drug or this longing to cover up the poor in spirit by gossip, by pointing out other people's flaws. And yet Jesus is saying right here that the happy person is the person that is self-aware of their spiritual poverty. And that those who are self-aware of that receive or have the kingdom of heaven. But he doesn't stop here, does he? Because if he did stop here, then what we could argue and say is, well, then there's many ways to get the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus is very clear that this isn't the case. Because he goes on to the next one. Blessed are those who mourn. 
for they shall be comforted. Now, how are those who mourn are happy? This just seems like a contradictory. And yet, what Jesus is continuing to pull back the curtain even further, he is saying it's not just enough to be self-aware of your spiritual poverty. Everybody is aware of their spiritual poverty. Is there a mourning that comes from this spiritual poverty? Is there a sorrow that is produced from knowing that you are poor spiritually? A lot of us know that we have problems. Everybody is self-aware. Well, most people are self-aware enough to know, I have this issue. But it's not just enough to know that you have an issue, you have to be sorrowful over that, which Jesus would call sin, to be sorrowful over sin. We, we, can, we can take instruction from the Apostle Paul who says, wretched man that I am. I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. What's wrong with me? But... Plenty of people can look at their spiritual poverty and mourn over it. Even the best moralistic person can say, I want to make changes in my life to be a better person. Well, Jesus goes on to then peel back the curtain further and say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed, happy are the meek. Blessed or happy are those who see their spiritual poverty, mourn over their spiritual poverty, and it leads them to humility, not pride. How quickly do our hearts turn on us when we start to kick whatever bad habit or addiction and we start to then look at other people and say, it's a good thing I'm not like them. They certainly have some problems. Why don't they just pull themselves up by their bootstraps too? What's so hard about it? I did it. And so instead of becoming meek like Jesus encourages us or tells us to, we become puffed up with pride. But not only that, the meek person is able to take instruction. The meek person is able to receive instruction or accountability. They are able to then say, I am a sinner. You know what's funny? I find when people are quick to criticize, but then you mention one thing and they say, hold on a second, only God can judge me. But did you hear about that person? Oh boy, they're a real piece of work. The meek person who inherits the earth is the person who is able to receive that and say, brother, sister, if you only knew how sinful I was, you would be even more critical of me. The sinfulness of my heart goes down further than what you think. But Jesus says it's these people who inherit the earth, the meek, not the proud, the, the meek, the humble inherit the earth. Which then leads them to the only illustration in 
the Beatitudes. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Are you one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? Are you one who hungers and thirsts to be made whole? Does your spiritual poverty lead you to mourn over your spiritual poverty and your sinful bankruptcy, which then leads you to humility, understanding that between myself and God, there is a huge chasm. I need reconciliation. I need a righteousness that's not of my own. I can't possibly pursue this righteousness on my own. I need somebody else to do it. Because as soon as I think I'm good enough, I realize that those good works do not compare to the sin that is deeply in my heart. And so you hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is this righteousness? This is the righteousness of Christ. This is the righteousness that was satisfied on the cross for our sins. This is Jesus Christ's sacrificial life. It's His sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And when we come to Him and repent, He takes all of our sin, He transfers all of His righteousness, and we are then adopted as sons and daughters. Jesus is, is saying, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you still hunger and thirst for righteousness? I couldn't help but think of this illustration. Is Do you look at what's happening in Ukraine and long for things to be made right? It's okay if you grieve at what's going on over there and long for things to be made right, for God's righteousness to extend across this earth. That is a person who is, is happy is what Jesus is saying here. So happy is the person who pursues this righteousness, who hungers and thirsts for this righteousness that's found in God and God only. Happy is the person who hungers and thirsts for this righteousness that's found in Christ. If you don't know this righteousness, you can receive this righteousness today. This righteousness can be yours. If there's this longing in you right now, knowing that you're spiritually bankrupt, that you're spiritually poor, and that has led you to ask questions of why. Why am I such a, a wicked person? Why am I such a, a vengeful, angry person? If that's led to your humility. Look no further than Christ. You can receive this today. Trust in Him. After the service, I'll be back by the doors. If you want to talk about this, let's talk. <laughs> and so we see these first few beatitudes, these first few things that Jesus is calling our, the happy person, really has to do with the spiritual state the soul of the person. But as we move on to the next, we see how this then comes out of our hearts and through our hands to those around us as Jesus continues to go on and says, Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Christians are to be the most merciful people on earth. 
Because they have received the greatest mercy, forgiveness of their sins. And so what transpires is out of our hands to those around us, whether it's our neighbors, whether it's our spouses, whether it's our kids or enemies. And some of you are like, well, kids are both right now. Mercy is to extend. Christians are to be merciful people. Jesus calls them happy people because they receive mercy. The Christian receives mercy from God and then extends that mercy out to their neighbors. This is the happy person. But that's not all. The happy person then is the person who is pure in heart. Or pursues, wants, is pure in heart, for they shall see God. These are those that long to be holy just as God is holy. To mature, to look more like Christ. To look at your old self and say, that's my old self. This is what Christ looks like. This is where I am marching. Those who are pure in heart are the ones who want to put to death the deeds of their flesh, to pursue fruits, not the flesh. It's those who shall see God. And as we continue to go, then blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who are happy are those who make peace. There's a, a, a phrase that I commonly hear when I'm in smaller groups. When there's a discussion going on, there's one person who then will say, here, let me, let me just play devil's advocate for us here. Let me just say what I normally say. The devil does not need any more advocates than he already has. Christians are to pursue peace. They're to pursue peace with brothers and sisters. They're even to pursue peace with enemies, people that they cannot stand. We are not to be a divisive bunch of people, but instead we are called to be peacemakers because it is the Prince of Peace who comes to bring peace on earth. It is the God of peace who desires peace. It is the Holy Spirit who comes and brings peace. And so then the happy person is the one who extends peace, who pursues peace, who longs for peace. Whether it's peace with brother and sister as Christians or peace with people who aren't. Whether it's peace for longing somebody to be at peace with God or not. We are to be people who pursue peace. We pursue peace. We should be, as Christians, the first people who pursue peace. So let me just say this. When we post things on Facebook, when we post memes on Facebook that is bashing or causing division, that is not pursuing peace. 
when we are at small groups or family functions and we want to stir the pot just a little bit to get a robust and good discussion going, we are not being people pursuing peace. Now hear me say this. This doesn't mean that we should not be clear and upfront about the truth. This does not mean that we don't call people to repent of their sins. This does not mean that we don't warn people of the wrath of God to come. That actually is one of the aspects of pursuing peace, but we don't do it coming from a high position or posture as arrogant jerks. We are to be people who pursue peace. These are the ones who are happy. And so as we then move on, what do you think this type of person would receive in return? This is where this message takes a turn for the best. Because here's the thing, as we here would think, okay, check, I'm going to be poor in spirit. I'm going to mourn over that. I'm going to be humble and meek. I'm going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm going to be merciful to those around me, and I'm going to be pure in heart, pursuing holiness. And I'm going to pursue peace with as many people as possible. Don't you think what Jesus then would say is, blessed are those who then will have an easy and comfortable life for the rest of their lives. Everybody will like you. You will be the best person to hang around because you'll be the most easygoing. And yet... That is not Jesus' call here. It's not even close to his call here. He says the most amazing countercultural thing for us, for them. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, let's just think about this for a moment. If I'm going to pursue peace with people, if I'm going to be merciful to people, if I'm going to be pure in heart and poor in spirit, I'm going to be persecuted? And Jesus says it's going to be a happy time. Happy are those who are persecuted. You know, at one point in the church's life, the mark of persecution was a badge of honor. It was the mark of we're hitting it. It was the bullseye. It was we're doing something right. We're receiving persecution. But here's the thing. We shouldn't receive persecution for being jerks. We should receive persecution for righteousness' sake. Not for being a jerk's sake. And Jesus then goes on to say, blessed are you when others revile you, when they, when they slander you, when they put you down, when they persecute you, when they utter all kinds of evil things, when they hate you, when, they dis when they're disgusted about you. But once again, he says, when they utter all of these evil, falsely things, it's on my account. It's not you that they hate. It's me that's in you that they hate. And then he says, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How many of us would look at persecution and say, boy, we're doing it. We're making it. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to be glad about people reviling me and slandering me and being disgusted about me. 
I don't know if many of us would look at that as a happy thing, and yet at one point in the church, this was the mark. This was the mark because this was then in line with the prophets who, became, who came before Jesus. This was in line with what Jesus himself received. This was the mark of saying, I truly am walking in the footsteps of my Lord. This is a happy thing. So I wonder, if you were the most influential person in this world, and you were going to start a kingdom for yourself, if this would be the checklist to find people to enter your kingdom. If I have to be honest, I probably wouldn't do that. I mean, I played a couple of rounds of dodgeball. I was certainly not picking the most unathletic people to be a part of my team. Right, doesn't the world pursue this and look at this and say, blessed are the rich for they shall own the biggest pieces of land and property? Blessed are those who are always happy for they live the easy and good life? Blessed are the proud and the go-getters, for they will become the CEOs of the world? Blessed are the popular, for they shall be well-liked and always invited over. And yet, this is not the way of the kingdom. It's the poor, those who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who pursue peace, who are persecuted. And so here, let me say this. You don't have to be impressive in Jesus' eyes. Jesus isn't looking for the most impressive, most popular, the most well-dressed or well-articulated people to enter his kingdom. What he's looking for is people to come and worship him and then live like it. He's looking for people to humbly admit, I don't have it together. He's looking for people who want to submit and say, I'll trust that you know better. And it's actually through this that the kingdom shines the brightest. Let's look at these two illustrations here. These two illustrations that Jesus used, one is a warning and seen in a negative sense, and the other is a, an encouragement seen in a positive sense. We, we come to verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if your salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
Now, here's, here's the, the thing that we just need to, to, to acknowledge is that salt doesn't actually lose taste. Salt is salt. But what takes place in this region is that there are pockets of salt that would be taken from the Dead Sea. And one thing that tended to happen was it would become contaminated. And because of the contamination, it would lose its saltiness. It would be no good to eat. It would be no good to flavor food. It would be no good as a preservative for food. And so what would happen is the people would throw it out and, the, and, and it would be trampled. And what took place is the ground would actually harden even more. It would become more hard because of the contaminated salt. And so what Jesus is warning His disciples here is saying, stay salty. Don't let the contamination of the world come into your heart thinking that you somehow need to be prideful, that you need to boast about yourself, that you need to pursue as much success in this world, that you need to be rich, that if you're being persecuted, something's going wrong. No, this is actually the saltiness that's coming out of you. But if you receive this contamination and lose your saltiness, what happens is those around you only become more hard to what you're trying to do. Salt is to bring out flavor. That's what I'm just trying to do, Sharice. I'm just trying to bring the flavor out of my food. And salt is used as a preservative to preserve. And so what Jesus is warning them is saying, if you lose your saltiness, your ministry will be no good. Likewise, he goes on to the next. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. It cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. And so here's the positive. Here's the encouragement. We are to be, the disciples are to be a city set on a hill that shines brightly. This is kind of humorous that Jesus is using this because, of course, a city set on a hill is going to be noticed. <laughs> of course, nobody would light a lamp, waste oil, and a wick just to put it underneath a basket. And so he's saying, through these things, let your light shine. And we even see more specifically than what he says he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. He's talking about your good works. Your good works towards your neighbor. I, I just saw and was reminded of this quote from Martin Luther. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. But it's not for your own selfish, puffed up pride for doing these good works. It's so people look at God and say, wow, look at God. So I wonder, church, what it would look like to be so radical in our love 
in our pursuing peace, in our being pure of heart, being poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that it led to our persecution. That people said, you shine so brightly, I want to lock you away in the deepest, darkest cell that we have because your light is shining too brightly for us. What if our church was a such a bright light, such a city on a hill towards our neighbors or for our neighbors that they couldn't help but say, these people are the happiest people I've ever met. These people are the most blessed people I've ever met. What's wrong with them? I want to understand a little bit of what's going on. This is what we've been called to do. This is who we've been called to be, a city set on a hill. I wonder if you would be so bold enough, so radical enough, to be as happy as what Jesus is calling his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount to be. Let's pray.